Well, if you have your Bible handy, and I hope you do, you can turn to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible there in the pew in front of you. You can uh, find the book of Ruth there, and you can take that Bible home with you if you need one. A few decades before the American colonists declared independence, there was a revival sweeping through the colonies known as the Great Awakening. Eyewitnesses report that as George Whitfield came overseas and he was preaching in the colonies and even down into Georgia and places that that tens of thousands of people would come out to hear Whitfield powerfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Massachusetts, there was a, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards, and as he would preach during this great awakening, this revival, as he would preach uh, on the reality and the eternality of hell, he would have congregants crying out in the midst of a sermon that by all accounts, he would just kind of read monotone. Congregants crying out, what must I do to be saved? Thousands of people coming to hear the gospel and coming to Christ. You know, when Edwards went to write an account of what the Lord was doing through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel in this great awakening, he called his account a a narrative of surprising conversions. A narrative of surprising conversions. Now, Edwards, he, he found the sheer number of people coming to Christ and sort of the, the dramatic events surrounding their coming to Christ, that, what, that is what was surprising to him. But we might borrow that idea in, in describing here Ruth the Moabite, a narrative of surprising conversions. She was from a people, as we saw last week, who had made themselves the enemy of God's people Israel, Her family certainly uh, did not worship the God of Israel, the one true God. But in our passage this morning, we see the incredible story of of God calling Ruth home, really home to a place that she'd actually never been before. We see God bringing Ruth to himself and into his unfolding plan of redemption. But Ruth is not the only one. We see God in His kindness calling Naomi back. Bitterness and all, He's gently calling her back to Himself. It is, by all accounts, a narrative of surprising conversions. So we pick up the narrative in verse 6 with with this news that has reached Naomi, that God has visited His people And the first point this morning, if you take notes or you're looking at the notes that that are provided for you, point number one, the Lord provides for His people. We began the book of Ruth last week. We're sort of uh, taking a a couple-month hiatus from Luke. We found a good little breaking point there. We'll get back to Luke shortly enough. But we began with an introduction to Ruth last week, and we encountered a faithless family living in one of the darker periods in the history of Israel. It's a time, as you uh, likely recall, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And in response to the unbelief of the people, God sends a, a, a famine in the land. 
And the purpose of the famine is, is a warning. It's a call back to repentance. And there's a family there in Bethlehem that Ruth zooms in on in the midst of this dark period of rebellion against God. And we see that they too, much like their neighbors in Israel, miss the warning. They don't repent. They don't turn back to the Lord. They decide to take matters into their own hands. And they choose to move to Moab. And they end up experiencing tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Naomi had gone to Moab with a husband and two sons, and a decade or so later, she finds herself having lost the, the, the three men in her life, the ones that could have provided for her and served her in her, in her need. And now it's only her and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah. And so verse 6 opens with a little bit of a surprise. Verse 5 closed with just suffering and tragedy in Moab. And, and verse 6 opens with Naomi setting out to return home. And that word return, I think it actually becomes the, the, the theme of chapter 1. You know, particularly back when Scripture was more likely to be read or, or to be heard than for each individual person to have their own copy of the Bible. We're so blessed to have the Bible in our own language today. But for many, in many years of the history of God's people, there would be a person that was reading it and it would be heard more often than it would be read personally. One of the ways an author might draw your attention to a particular theme is through the repetition of a particular word. And so you see that word return. It shows up 12 times in chapter 1. If you are one who likes to underline, you might seek to underline these, this word return. It shows up in verse 6. It shows up in verse 7. In verse 8. In verse 10. In verse 11. It's the same word, but it's translated in the ESV, turn back. Same thing with verse 12, turn back. Same word, it's being used over and over and over again. Verse 15, gone back, um, return there again in verse 15, return in verse 16, brought me back in verse 21, returned, returned in verse 22, over and over and over again, return, 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 return. And remember, last week, we mentioned the significance of God promising this, this land to Israel, that he would dwell in the midst of his people, and if they would walk in obedience, that he would bless his people. He would provide for them, their crops would grow, they would be fertile with their uh, bearing of children. And, and so we argued last week that for Elimelech to lead his family out of the promised land into Moab was an act of faithlessness. God had said, if you obey me, the nations will come to you to, to loan out food and treasure. But here you see a faithless Israelite saying, you know what? We've got to go to the nations because our God has not provided for our needs. So we argued that to flee the promised land was actually an act of defiance, a lack of trusting in the Lord uh, the, the act of faith would have been repentance and remaining in the land. Now, we said this all has to do with the old covenant that God had made with Israel, that he would dwell with them and he would provide for them, and that leaving would be unbelief. 
And so if, if leaving, if, if we're right on that, if leaving is an act of, of Elimelech and his family sort of uh, symbolically turning their back on the Lord, then returning would be God calling Naomi back to himself. It's a picture of repentance, of returning back to the place that the Lord said he would dwell and provide for his people. In fact, you see often that word return, return is used as for repentance or even conversion. In Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord. For he, he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. Sounds sort of like Naomi's situation. She's been afflicted. She's been struck down. And here God is calling her to return back to the land. Now the emphasis then in chapter 1, it doesn't fall so much on Naomi's great faith and her great revelation of, oh, oh wow, I need to repent. In fact, we'll see um, multiple examples of Naomi's lack of faith. I think instead the emphasis falls on God's grand design and his faithfulness in bringing her back to himself. You know, she gets about as much credit as Jonah does for getting swallowed by a fish. And there is a helpful thing for us to learn in that. Let's not forget where, where the emphasis of our salvation and our deliverance, even our repentance and our faith, lies. It lies in the work of God and not in our own good works or even our own ability to see more clearly than our neighbors. I'm, I came to Christ because I'm smart and I figured it all out. It's not that. I heard Alistair Begg say recently that if, if somebody asks you how you were saved, how you came to Christ, and your answer begins in the first person, I did this, or as faith is a gift from the Lord, even if it's I believed this, then we've already stumbled out of the gates. The Father has graciously elected us before the foundation of the world. Christ accomplished our redemption on that cross, and the Spirit made us alive in Christ, allowing us to see the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Though Naomi here has suffered bitterly, it's actually a word that's come from Israel of the kindness of God that initiates her return. Look there at the end of verse 6. We said verse 6 kind of surprising. Like, why are, you leaving, why are you leaving Moab now? Verse 6 tells us why she's headed back. She, she had heard good news. While living in Moab, while presumably work, living in the fields of Moab, the text says, or maybe working the fields of Moab even, the Lord has visited his people back in Israel. And last week we said that if famine was the result of Israel's disobedience, then the Lord visiting his people, providing bread, was the blessing of their repentance. Now if it's the book of Judges, that repentance likely didn't last long, but God has visited his people. He is pouring out his kindness on a faithless people. He has given them bread. Remember Bethlehem, which is where this family's from. It means house of bread. And God is filling up once again the house of bread. He's restocking the shelves. He is delivering his people from the pain of the famine. And so the sting of 
suffering is not actually what ended up drawing Naomi back. The sting of suffering may have got Naomi's attention, but it was the provision of the Lord in Israel that eventually brought her home. And we know from other passages that it is indeed the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Suffering can sort of be eye-opening for us, but it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Think about the prodigal son. He suffered much. He, he was longing to eat out of a pig's trough. And, the, and in some ways that was a wake-up call, but it was the reminder that his father has plenty of bread in his house that eventually led the prodigal back to the house of the father. See, misery had led him to the knowledge that he should return, but it was the abundant provision of the father that took him back to the house. And so we can notice the Lord's goodness and the Lord's faithfulness in, in his commitment to Israel here. His commitment to even an unfaithful people and providing food for them, giving them bread, despite the book of Judges just being dark, dark uh, acts of rebellion. Over and over, Israel rebelled against the Lord. And the Lord refused to be unfaithful to his people despite the fact that they were unfaithful to him. It's that kindness that woos us back to the Lord. Even as believers, when we're tempted to sin or maybe we even do sin, it's God's kindness that enables us to turn back to him and know that we are forgiven in Christ. So the Lord's provision is what leads Naomi to return but then the question arises, well, what about these two Moabite daughters-in-law? What do we do with them? Well, point number two this morning, the Lord saves unlikely candidates. Look there in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore re refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So while Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are traveling back towards Bethlehem. We don't know how far they got. Perhaps they got to the border of Moab and Israel. And it's a time of decision. Naomi suddenly stops and encourages Ruth and Orpah to stop following her. You don't want to cross this line, she says. You don't want to cross over into Israel. This is, this is a critical moment. It's, it's decision time for Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi is going to press the girls 
uh, uh, pretty hard here. And to me, this section is, is a bit of a mystery. Why would Naomi try to talk the girls out of following her back to Israel and returning to the promised land? And I think, you know, some people try to make a hero out of Naomi. Well, you know what she's doing? She's doing exactly what Jesus did with the rich young ruler when Jesus said, go sell everything you have. Well, maybe, maybe there's some of that. Some people have made a zero, so to speak, out of Naomi saying, man, she really butchered it here. She's doing anti-evangelism. Well, I think, I think the best way to think about it, most likely, it, we see some, some weird things that Naomi says, some, some things that would indicate she's not thinking biblically here. But I think on the other hand, we might say she's, she's trying to actually do what she thinks is best for her daughters-in-law. But we'll see. She needs some theological precision here. Naomi begins her argument, and again, I think she's got her daughter's best interest at heart, but she, she misses the mark in some ways. Naomi begins by pointing out reasons that the girls should remain in Moab. These are like the positive reasons. This is why you should remain. She starts with these back-to-back commands, go, return. It's like, go back to your natural families, she's saying, the, the house of your mother's. You know, there's such a, a, a tight bond between these ladies that becomes really, really obvious here as the story develops. But Naomi is encouraging the daughters, go back to your natural families. Go back to your biological families. I'm, I'm your mother-in-law. Go back to your real mom. Go back to your homes. She even pronounces a sort of blessing over the girls here. May the Lord treat you well. May he deal kindly with you in the way that you have treated me. What she's asking there is that God's covenant faithfulness, his faithfulness to his people would actually extend into Moab and protect Ruth and Orpah as they turn around and they go back. May the Lord act for your good as you acted for my good. In, in a way that Naomi recognizes, Orpah and Ruth have been examples or models or faint pictures of God's covenant faithfulness. His has said, you may hear it called. It's translated here in the ESV, to deal kindly. It's a word that's hard to capture with one English word. That's why you'll see it translated different ways at different times. When it's in reference to God, it's speaking of His steadfast love, His faithfulness to His covenant, His willingness to do what's best and to work on behalf of His people. Words like mercy and grace are sometimes the words that are translated from said. Loyalty. It's God's commitment to act for the good of His people because that's who He is and that's His character and it's His nature whether or not His people are deserving at the moment. And so as the girls have been faithful to Naomi and served her, she's saying, may the Lord be faithful to you and work on your behalf. May He show you favor from above. One of the most obvious ways for Naomi then that, that this favor might be bestowed on Ruth and Orpah 
is that they go back and they find Moabite husbands. That's really the second big reason. She says, you need to go. You need to go back. Because if you stay with me, you're not likely to find a husband. If you go back to Moab, you're likely to find a, a husband and you can enjoy rest, it says there, it's th th that she might find peace and provision and protection in the arms of a husband. If you come with me, that will likely elude you. You won't find a husband if you come and follow me. And so that's our first big push. I'm going to get these girls to turn back. And this, this big push, it results in tears and outcries. Wailing is probably a, a, a good word to describe what's going on here. You know, it's, it's fun and easy to make mother-in-law jokes, but these, these daughters-in-law love their mother-in-law. They've been through suffering together. They've been through the ringer together. The type of suffering that oftentimes divides people has brought this family even closer together. And so Naomi has made her initial case. She's made her initial plea for the girls to go back. But these two, Ruth and Orpah, are not easily dissuaded. They push back there in verse 10 and say, we will return with you. They've become closer to Naomi, apparently, than their own biological mothers. And so they're set, they're both set, at least in verse 10, on returning with Naomi to the promised land. It's interesting that they are said to be returning, even though it's not a return for them in the strictest sense. So Naomi sets out to, to reinforce her argument. She's tried the positive side, like, hey, you know, you should go over here. You can probably find a husband. Now she turns to the negatives, what it's going to mean if you stay with me. And obviously, though, these things sort of overlap. But three times, you'll notice in verses 11 through 14, she addresses these girls as her daughters. And each one of those sort of lays out a reason why they should return. The first there is in verse 11. Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Really, her question is, that first question is rhetorical. It's, it's likely almost sarcastic. Why should you return with me? The implied answer is, of course you shouldn't return with me. There's nothing that I have to offer you. You don't have a future worth living if you come with me. Why would you want to do that? And then at the end of verse 11, the beginning of verse 12, again, she, she makes this comment about uh, being able to remarry. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. Am I going to be able to have children? Are you going to wait for me to have children? Are you going to wait till they're old enough to marry one of my children? Now that might, as Americans, that might strike us as really, really odd and really different. Like what in the world is Naomi talking about? And we don't have, we don't have a way of understanding what Naomi is talking about unless we understand what's called the law of leveret marriage or the law of the kinsman redeemer. This was a principle laid down in the old covenant in in the law, where if a widow was left husbandless, 
Again, we've said there's no welfare. A widow is one of the most susceptible people to abuse in this culture. So if a widow was left husbandless, it became the obligation of the closest single relative to marry his, most of the time, brother's widow and to, one, make sure she was provided for. But two, and we'll get into this in more detail later on because it becomes really important in chapters three and four, but this was also for the purpose of maintaining the deceased man's family line. The first son that was born to this family would carry on the lineage of the dead brother. And so the line could continue and it would not be blotted out in Israel. I was telling Wayne this week, if, if, well, I don't know, Wayne. It'd be a scandal in America if this happened, right? It'd be like, what? That's kind of weird, isn't it? But this was God's law. This was God's provision for God's people. And so um, that's why Naomi's saying what she's saying, that she's getting too old. She's saying that, you know what, if I got married tonight and got pregnant tonight and She's like, that ain't happening. But if it happened tonight, you might be too old and you wouldn't want to wait anyways. You wouldn't want to remarry by the time these boys are able to remarry. There's no guarantee that if I got married tonight and got pregnant tonight that it's even a boy. Why would you wait? Why would you, why would you hitch yourself to this wagon? So Naomi, we said she needs some, some theological clarity I think one of the reasons she's pushing her daughters away is she can't imagine a scenario in which Bethlehem will work out for her daughters-in-law. She can't imagine a scenario in which Bethlehem works out for her girls. It seems that part of the reason she's pushing so hard is that she lacks a, a, a knowledge and a trust in the creative goodness of God. She just can't fathom how God himself might be able to use this and to turn this for the good of of her girls. In her limited view, there's only one hope for them, and it's marriage. And there's a, they're, the only way they're going to get married is if they go back to Moab. God couldn't possibly provide for my girls if they faithfully return to the promised land. But the beauty of the book of Ruth as it unfolds is that God is wiser. God is way more good. He's way more faithful than we can think or imagine than anything we can fathom in our mind and our own finite, limited understanding. So she continues in the press. One final time in verse 13, no, my daughters. She really answers her question. Would you want to wait? Do you want to risk it? You want to roll the dice on this? No, you can't wait. You can't and you shouldn't because, this is her rationale in verse 13, because the Lord has made me his target. And you know what? You know, we joke about standing next to somebody who blasphemes the Lord, like, don't be too close, the lightning might stand. That's almost what she's getting at. The Lord has made me his target. You don't want to come with me because the Lord has afflicted me. He has stretched out his hand against me. You know, you don't want to come with me because you might end up being collateral damage to the way the Lord has been treating me. And so this appeal, it's actually convincing to Orpah. She gives Naomi a goodbye kiss and she turns back to Moab. 
And by all the available evidence that we have in God's word, it would seem that Orpah was a kind lady, a loyal lady to her mother-in-law. She's actually listening and obeying the will of her mother-in-law. But the truth is, Orpah's turning back is the foil to Ruth's faithfulness. She's the opposite of what Ruth is about to do. And so we want to we be kind where we can be kind, but we want to say this is, this is not the action she should have taken. She turns back, as Naomi will say in a minute, to the gods of Moab. One author said it this way, with that simple, sensible choice, she marched off out of the pages of the Bible. Never hear from Orpah again. Whether Naomi realizes it or not, and I don't think she does, she's asking the girls to really count the cost. Count the cost in coming to Bethlehem. Following me, she's saying, will likely result in no husband, no children to pass on the family line, no provider, no security. This is what it's going to cost you if you come into Israel, if you come into the promised land. Humanly speaking, there is no hope for a future for Ruth or Orpah. They should go back to the gods of Moab. And I don't know how conscious she is of this, but she's asking them to be willing to give up everything in order to turn to Yahweh and follow her into the promised land. There's two options that are laid out before the ladies. I can have my dreams and my goals minus the Lord. I I can have everything minus Him. Or I can give up everything and follow Him and trust Him with the results. There is a cost. There is a cost in submitting yourself to Christ, but we'll see in a moment, it's, it's always worth it. It's always worth it to obey God. It's always worth it to faithfully follow Christ. And we see then Ruth's insistence. Orpah leaves, and, and Naomi points that out in verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return. Or to return from following you. For where you, will, you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. After call, after call, after call to return to Moab, Ruth is found not kissing her mother-in-law goodbye, but clinging to her. She's not letting her go. And now it's Ruth's turn to speak. And these are Ruth's first words in the book of Ruth, and they are some of the most memorable words in all of Scripture. You can almost hear the exasperation in her voice as she has listened to her mother-in-law again and again and again say, you need to go back, you need to go back, you need to go back. And she says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. That's the polite way of saying, back off. Or listen up. That's enough. Ruth says, I'm remaining. I'm determined to remain. And there's a couple reasons that she's going to remain. One is that she's committed to Naomi. She's committed to her. 
Ruth commits to live her life with Naomi. She commits to, if, to dying with Naomi. If it's up to me, Ruth says, the only thing that will separate us is death. I'm going to die where you die. And I will be buried where you will be buried, she says. So she's committed to her mother-in-law. But more importantly, she is, she's repudiating the false gods of Moab. And she's embracing the Lord of the universe. She is committing herself to the one true Lord. I think if you want to think about the way narrative rises to a climax, the climax of this passage is verse 16, your people shall be my people and your God my God. And this is, we've talked about the language of the covenant. God had told Israel on several occasions, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And here Ruth is echoing that. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She's turning from the false worship of the gods of Moab, and she's embracing Yahweh. She is returning in that sense. Boaz actually acknowledged that, that this, is, this is something spiritual. This is the, the language of conversion here. He mentions in chapter 12, verse 13, that she, he heard that she has brought herself underneath the shadow of the Almighty. You have come under the protection and the grace and the mercy of the Almighty God. This is conversion. One commentator said, The younger Moabite widow turned her back on all that was familiar and secure, and with incredible faith stared into an uncertain future. She had repudiated the gods of Moab and cast herself on Yahweh, the God of Israel. It is difficult, he says, to imagine a more dramatic conversion. See, there's only two options in this narrative. Go back to the gods of Moab or turn to the Lord in repentance and faith and bring yourself under the shadow of the Almighty. I wonder if some of us this morning are deceived about the fact that there's only two ways. We want to imagine that maybe there's a third way, that I don't have to actually commit myself to the Lord. I don't have to submit to Him. I don't have to repent and follow Him. Instead, I can just sort of assent to His presence, and He would never punish someone as kind and gentle and obedient as me. Maybe there's some deception here this morning that you can cling to your sin and still come and follow Christ. Well, we've been told we must count the cost. We know that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. And so we turn away, if we want to follow Christ, turn away from selfish indulgences, the pleasures of the flesh. There is no third way. We count the cost and we turn from our sin and we see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ and we embrace Him. It means turning away from this world. It means hating your sin and loving God's righteousness. But as we said earlier, it's, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. That what the gods of this world, the gods of Moab, have to offer are nothing. And we see again as Ruth develops that God is creatively kind. He's kind and gracious in ways that Ruth and Naomi could have never imagined. And it shouldn't surprise us when we see that in the pages of Scripture. Because it's the, the, the rest of the story has been revealed to us. 
that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which of us would have come up with that as the plan for, for salvation for the world? Paul said that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? It's so worth it to repudiate the things of the world and the pleasures of the flesh and to turn from sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. One preacher said, Jesus is the answer to the question, is God holding out on me? Jesus is the answer to the question, is God holding out on me? If he didn't spare his own son, then you will find everything you need in him. But we must count the cost of following Christ. But we know there's nothing, there's nothing that you will ever give up in faithfulness to the Lord that's not worth it. That's not worth it. You know, even as believers, we can so easily forget that as we face temptation and the reality of our own sin. But I think we do see an example here in Ruth that she considered what her future would likely be if she followed faithfully in, in the steps of Naomi, if she followed faithfully uh, her new Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of the universe. And what she saw, what, what, what she could likely only imagine, is two widows living in Bethlehem, barely able to survive, and she says, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because again, I, I, I come under the shadow of the Almighty. And so this first section ends with Ruth and Naomi. I mean, chapter 1 wraps up with Ruth and Naomi making it back to Bethlehem. And, and again, the, the, the narrative returns to dialogue. And much of Ruth sort of driven by dialogue. And we hear Naomi lamenting. And that's our last point. We'll move quickly here. Point number three, the Lord afflicts but not from his heart. The Lord afflicts, but not from his heart. There is a buzz in Bethlehem as Naomi comes back into town. There's an excitement. There's a whisper in the air. There's gossip going around, and they're wondering, is Naomi back? Is that Naomi? You know, time had likely taken a toll on Naomi. She'd had a hard life out in Moab. Is this the same Naomi that left so many years ago? If that's Naomi, where's Malon? Where's Kilion? Where's Elimelech? And so she hears the whispers, and she, she hears people talking about her return, and her response, uh, it, it demonstrates her view of her life up to this point. And she says, do not call me Naomi, which means something like pleasant or kindness or something like that. She says, call me bitter, because the Lord has been harsh with me. He has brought calamity upon me. He has availed himself against me. He has testified against me. He has found me guilty, and he's punished me for it. This is my lot. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me kind, because God has not been pleasant with me. God has been bitter with me. She says, I went out full, but I came back empty. Now, it's probably not talking about food there because they went out because of a famine. But she went out with a husband, and she went out with two sons, and she came back empty. And Ruth is standing on the sidelines saying, Hello, your people shall be my people. <laughs> Naomi does recognize one thing correctly here. The Lord is sovereign. 
She refers to him, the, the, your English translation probably says, Almighty, it's, it's Shaddai. He is the sovereign king of the world. He rules over even life and death. So she recognizes the sovereign hand of God even in her affliction, but she misses at this point that God is indeed going to bring about something pleasant. He is indeed going to be kind to her. She misses what Lamentations 3 makes so clear. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he does cause grief. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God doesn't delight in your trials. He doesn't delight in your suffering. But he's willing to compromise our comfort and our health at times and our pleasant life in order to accomplish something more necessary in us. What felt like sword thrusts to Naomi, he has testified against me. He has stretched out his hand against me. What felt like, felt like sword thrusts to Naomi were the careful incisions of a, of a gifted surgeon. It was the scalpel of a skilled surgeon. See, I think by the end of Naomi's life, she would be able to say with David in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before affliction came, I, I wandered away, but you brought affliction to me, and now I walk in obedience and faithfulness. You are good. Teach me your statutes. Naomi is returning to the land. But her recognition of God's fatherly care and concern and work in her heart, that's slower to develop in the book of Ruth. She recognizes his power. She misses his grace. In fact, in chapter 1, we get that contrast between Naomi slowly coming around to the recognition that God is for her, and he's acting to bless her and to fill her back up. I went away full, I came back empty, and the rest of the book of Ruth, God is filling her arms back up. She's slow and she's plodding in her return to Yahweh. But not like Ruth. Ruth seems to be one of those instantaneous conversions. The beauty of the book of Ruth is that God is showing his covenant faithfulness to both Naomi and to Ruth. She's slow. She's saying all kinds of weird things like you should go back to the gods of Moab, like God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, you should just call me bitter. But God is demonstrating his covenant faithfulness to her as much as he is to Ruth. God will fill the empty arms of Naomi. But much, much more than that even, Naomi, Naomi's suffering is part of God's kindness to Ruth. And so one thing we might take away then is this. Oftentimes, I think when we look for the good, so to speak, in our own suffering, it's so individualistic. So, well, what is God going to do for me? I got in a car wreck. Is he going to give me a new car? What's, what's he going to do? How is he going to redeem my suffering? It has to be about me and what he's going to do in me. But oftentimes, 
and we see it in Naomi, that much of her hardship and her suffering was so that Ruth might be blessed, and through the line of Ruth, the nations might be blessed. So let's not be so self-centered and selfish that we aren't okay with the fact that we might suffer for the good of someone else. Our suffering might be for the good of someone else. You know, the example that you set to others in this church, when you suffer and you set an example, when you walk in faithfulness to the Lord, that might be the very thing that spurs the next person on to faithfulness and obedience in the midst of His. God has made this world perfect and He filled it with more than enough, more than enough provision for His creation. Adam and Eve had more than enough at their disposal. But they bought the lie that God was holding out on them. And they reached for the one thing that the Lord had prohibited them from partaking of. And they rebelled against God, insisting on their own way. And we too have walked in the footsteps of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we have rebelled against the Lord in our sin and insisting on living our way and doing things the way that I see fit as opposed to God's revealed will in His Word. And our sin had put us at enmity with God. We had brought ourselves under the just judgment of God Himself. But God, He has made a way. He has made a peace treaty. But for peace to come, it required a satisfaction of a price. And that, again, is a price we could never pay. The only satisfaction is the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He died so that we might live. He paid the debt we could never pay, in, and in so meeting our greatest need. And when we see it, God, when we see God's gracious provision and salvation, if you're a Christian this morning, you can take this to heart. When the Lord causes affliction to visit your home or your family, if you are in Christ, God has not made himself your enemy. He has not stretched his hand out against you. He has satisfied the price that must be paid so that we can be the recipients of his grace and his kindness. There's no more wrath. There's no more punishment for those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't out of control and angry when you are suffering. How do I know that? Because Christ has swallowed up all the enmity that existed between you and God. He bore our sins in his body so that you can trust that whatever arises in your life is from the sovereign hand and the infinite wise mind of God who stands for you, not against you. God is an ally to his people. If you're outside of Christ this morning, would you turn to him and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? He is gentle and lowly at heart. He knows how to deal with repentant sinners who turn to him and say, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. If you have questions this morning about the gospel, if you have questions about Christ, maybe you're suffering, uh, I'll be at the back door. Uh, the elders will be around here, or you can talk to the person that brought you to church this morning. They would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray together.